Um, it's very unusual to be given the uh, option that I could preach on anything that I want to preach on. Uh, so it's quite a, a great thing to be asked that. Um, and it's one thing that's, that's always been on my mind for quite a while, actually, in the last six or so months. Um, and it's from um, 1 Colossians um, 1 Colossians chapter, yeah, chapter 1, verses 13 to 22. So we're going to be looking at that. But the reason I want to sort of go through this is because when I go through and think about a sermon, um, there's a lot of things that go through my mind before I start preparing it. And often I'll have some friends that I'll go to. I have some non-Christians, and I'll have my wife and my kids. And they're usually, my kids are actually usually my, my biggest critics, <laughs> but they're actually pretty good at niggling away at some things that I need to improve on. But there's been a lot of conversations I've had with people recently about who is Jesus. My kids um, come back from school and they say, oh, we've had time in RE, and, and well, I want to know more about Jesus. I and mean, who exactly is he? And I spent time, as, as I hope to maybe go a bit more detail a bit later, uh, but hopefully maybe not for time-wise, but just in case I don't get there, um, I've worked with people with, who have been refugees from Afghanistan, and they've asked me questions about who is Jesus, who do I think Jesus is. And I've had times where I've worked with kids in care, and they've asked questions about religion as well. So I know like, we all probably know who Jesus is as we're in church today, but I think it's really good to just remind ourselves bits and pieces about what, who it is that we worship, and what it really means to us when we say that we worship, and what we believe about Jesus. Because I was looking at this further, and it's in the, uh, there, was a, there was a survey taken in 2015. And in this survey, in the UK, 40% believed that uh, the story of Jesus was just a myth. I don't know how much of the population they took it off, but they believe that 40% believe that the person of Jesus never walked this earth. He's just a made-up figure. He's a figure of imagination. And I was talking to my friends, and they said, yeah, I kind of get, believe that too. And I said, well, I could go on a bit of a rant, actually, how that's completely not true. And I could take you through different literature, not only biblical literature, but I could take you through Roman literature, I could take you through secular li- literature, I could take you through Jewish, all to say that this man, Jesus, lived and breathed and walked in Galilee and died and was crucified. And not only was he crucified, but there's obviously others that say that he rose again. So you can't deny that this man, Jesus, lived and died on this earth. And it was a bit puzzled at first, and they they sort of gave me a bit of a silent treatment. So I said, the main question isn't whether Jesus existed. The question is, who is Jesus to you? And that's the question I want to ask this morning. Who is Jesus to you? We're going to touch on it a bit later, but I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this bit of um, sermon today, just to keep that in your minds. Who is Jesus to you? What does he really mean to you? Have you treated Jesus as he should be treated? Or is there some things that you need to improve on? Can we look at people and say, you know what? He did live and breathe on this earth and he may have died. Well, he did die on this earth. But who is he to you? So we're looking at this section in Colossians. And I've entitled it Jesus, Lord of all. And we're going to be segmenting it into three different parts. Lord over creation. Lord over the church, and Lord over death. So I just want to go... Ooh, was that me? No. Nope. <laughs> I just want to go through it. So let's just read the whole scripture together, and then I'll, um, we'll go forward from there. So you're starting from verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Thank you, Lord. So I just want to start with the first verse, which says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. So sometimes when we think about the image, I was trying to speak to my kids about this. They say, well, if you have a photo of the queen, it's not really the queen, is it? So they're not really the same. I wouldn't really want the picture for the queen overhanging in my room anyway, but I was talking to my kids and I was saying, well, no, that's, that, that is true. But actually, if you look at it and you interpret it the Bible like that way, you're really doing an injustice to the actual text and what it's actually saying. You're not really getting the, the hang of it. I said, and they said, well, why is that, Dad? And I said, well, if you look at what the image really means in the Bible, if you look at in the in Hebrews, so as we see here in Hebrews 1, 3, and if you look in the introduction to John or here within Colossians, actually, when it talks about Jesus, the image, it's talking about Jesus as being the exact embodiment of God, the exact representation of God. In other words, to actually say that Jesus is the image of God, he is, they're basically saying he is divine, he is divinity. And my chief, okay, 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 I can kind of understand that, Dad. <laughs> I can kind of come to grips with that. I said, you know, when you look at the Old Testament, it says that we were created in the image. But God is the image of, Jesus is the image of God. There's a clear distinction and difference to be made. Often we kind of think, well, that's not always the case, but it really is. And we have to understand that Jesus is divine. And what he's saying from the outset, because in those days, they would say, well, how can an invisible God come to this earth and be in a physical body? And if you go to other religions, they'll say exactly the same thing. God is invisible, so how can he become physical? So this automatically is a great statement for Paul to make, isn't it? The Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is divine. It's an astounding statement to make, first of all. I mean, then moves on a bit further. The firstborn over all creation. Now this is a really great line. I've, um, I don't know about you, but I've had quite a few Jehovah Witnesses in my time come to my door and ask a few questions. Um, and sometimes when I was a kid, my mum would shut the door and sometimes she would open it. but in my experience I like well let's have a chat and let's try and get things through and let's talk things through with them and often see where the difference comes in is because when you get to Jehovah's Witnesses they interpret this slightly differently in fact in their bible they'll say the first created being but actually that's a complete misrepresentation and understanding of the text and you can get this if you go back to the old testament if you look at the psalms where David is actually referred to as the firstborn but David wasn't the firstborn in his family. In fact, he was the youngest of his brothers. And Israel is referred to the firstborn. But actually, Israel wasn't the first thing that God created. So the firstborn in these instances is, is actually saying that they have preeminence over all that follows. They're first in rank of everything that goes forth from there. 
So to say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation is to say that Jesus has preeminence over all creation and all that follows. I think that's like, um, it's an amazing thing to think about and to really think, sorry. It's a really amazing thing to really get your head around. He moves on to say, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I mean, that's quite an exhaustive list, isn't it, when you think about it? If Paul was trying to say how amazing Jesus is and how he reigns over everything, what else could he say? Things that we see, things that we don't see, of all authorities, all principalities, everything comes under Jesus. Amen. And I think that's just, that when I really reminisce about that, I thought, what does that really mean for me and for us as a church? And I think for me, it means this. That Jesus must infiltrate every area of my life, every area of my thinking, every area of my being. When I first started off um, leading worship and doing sermons, my wife used to say to me, oh, Jack, I love it when you do sermons or preach because, you know, you kind of get a bit more holy before you go and do your sermons. <laughs> and what she's basically saying is that I get so engrossed in trying to make sure I do a good job of my sermon or if I'm doing worship. That I spend so much time in the words that it overflows into how I react with my family. It overflows into how I interact with my kids, how I interact with my wife. So to say that Jesus, Jesus is preeminent over everything is to say that he must infiltrate every area of our lives, of our thinking, of our conduct, of our marriages, of our relationships with others, with our children, with our, at work, at school. And that really made me wonder, like, do I really put Jesus first in all these things? I don't want my wife to say, Jack, only when you preach, you're getting holy. I want my wife to say, you're getting holy day by day. (laughs) But that's a bit, I mean, I'm getting there, but I'm not quite there yet. But you can get my drift. I want my wife to be happy and think, you know what, I'm searching to be more like Jesus. I want him to be there in everything that I do and say. He has been created through him and for him. All things he hope, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know, I've been saying recently that I used to work with, well, I still do actually work with children aged between 16 and 18, and for various reasons, I can't really go into too much detail because of safeguarding reasons, but um, they can't live at home. So I live with them basically at the moment. I do, 70, I do 70, 48 hours, 72 hours. I do basically work whole weekends with them, and I, I basically live with them. It's almost a home from home. <laughs> and uh, I've lived and I shared their life with them. And I've seen them cry and I've seen them suffer. And I've seen them be addicted to drugs and alcohol and other things and self-harm. I've sat with them in hospital in A&E for five, six, seven hours. I sat with them on the kitchen floor and had conversations with them. And all they're doing sometimes is saying to me, you know what, Jack, would this world really be a different place if I wasn't here? What is, would it really be any different if I didn't exist? And it's kind of like the big philosophical questions of life, isn't it? Why are we here and why do we exist? And I think even in this short little text here, it says that you were created for God, by Jesus and for Jesus. You have a meaning and a purpose in your life. Even if it doesn't feel good right now or at times. I don't know what each of us are going through, whether you're watching online or whether you're here today. I don't know if things are going great or things are not going great. 
But maybe there's got to be times in our life where we've really questioned ourselves and questioned God. But he said, God is here. I have a purpose in my life. And not only that, but God holds it together. God holds things together. Isn't that a great picture? That I, I mean, maybe it's because I like to say so, I like to do art. But I just have this you know, picture of Jesus literally holding with his hands everything together. And I'm like, that's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? Like back in the days when this was written, it was thought of the idea that maybe God sort of made the world like a clock and he wound it up and he let it go and he has nothing else to do with it. But that's not the case with the Christian gods. He's involved in day-to-day activities and he holds things together. Maybe there's something in your life right now that you need to say, God, I need you to hold this together. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's prayers for your friends. Maybe things are going great. That's fantastic. But maybe there's other stuff in our life. We say, you know, God, I need you to hold this together for me. It's out of my hands and I need to give it to you. So moving on, it's the next bit, Lord over the church. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in him everything he might have supremacy. So here we come again to using the word firstborn. So Paul often uses this idea of the body and a body metaphor in other places within Corinthians. But here he uses this and he says he's the head of the church. And he then goes on to say, he is, the, he is the beginning and the firstborn born from among the dead. And this is a great thing because obviously Jesus wasn't the first person to be resurrected. So what is he saying here? We read in the Gospels that Lazarus was raised to the dead. So what does it mean here when he's saying that Jesus is the firstborn in this, in this reference in regards to this? Well, it's basically, I think, saying this, that Jesus, everyone else that had died and been raised to life for whatever reasons, like Lazarus, eventually died again. But Jesus, when he died and when he was rose again, he remained living and, gone, and now he's seated in heaven and intercedes for us. He's the firstborn in that sense. And it's made very clear if we read the Corinthians just underneath. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. Then all, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Paul's taking us back to the first pages in Genesis, isn't he? Where, where sin entered through one man, through, through Adam, and death entered in through one man. And this is why, you know, the great gospel, when I was trying to share it with some of my friends, I said, this is what Paul is saying. Then we have some great conversations with my non-Christian friends. We'll get the Bible out. And I said, look, this is what it's saying. It's saying that sin entered through one person, through Adam. And because sin was there, sin had to be dealt with and sin needed to be punished. And because man, man did it, man had to actually atone for it. Man had to make it better. But he couldn't do it. He's gone throughout all these the centuries, all throughout the pages of the Old Testament trying to do this. But he could not do it. But then Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes and Jesus dies. Jesus offers his sacrifice for us. Why? So that all who believe in him may have eternal life, may share in the victory, may share in the goodness of God that he has given for us. When I think about that myself, I'm just completely at awe at times. It's something that I've always thought about maybe. I know the gospel is about... Jesus comes to die for me. But what really does it mean for me in my life right now? 
We're going to touch on it just a little short bit. The last bit, Jesus lords over death. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. When I reflected on this, I was remembered of different instances where I've heard people talk about the church. Um, my wife, if you ask her what her favourite movie is, she'll say the Titanic. And that's just a terrible thing for me, because uh, I can watch it for about three or four times, but when it comes to past 20, it's like, no, I'm not doing any more. But within, that, within the time, there's, I once heard someone talk about the lifeboats afterwards trying to rescue people when the, when the Titanic sank. But the problem with that, and there's always good bits and bad bits to metaphors, isn't there? We can, always, we can pull them apart. There's great bits to that. Yes, the church is a place where we can rescue people. We can pull them in. We can bring people to know Jesus. We can heal, bring healing and restoration. But the problem with that, in my experience, is that the majority of people that I meet don't want to be saved. And the reason I think they don't want to be saved is because they don't know what, they want to, they don't know what they've got to be saved from. Because they don't like to look at themselves. We don't like to think what is wrong with the world so I had a really good conversation with one of my friends and uh, I was saying to him you know the bible says we're saying here that we've all committed like evil deeds and we all need and sinners enter this world and he's like yeah I know what the bible says Jack I was like, okay fair enough but he says you know what but I don't believe that's the case I believe yes that evil does exist in the world if you look at some of the tyrants in history if you look at Stalin or Hitler there's you know, other people you might say yeah they, that is definitely evil but not me you can't compare me with someone like that and I was like wow funny you say that <laughs> that's the way the world thinks isn't it like, well I'm not as long as I'm not as bad as that person then I'm okay but the problem with that is that that's not what the bible says and what the bible teaches us you see, the problem is that, as I said to him, you know, the thing is that people tend to think that monstrous acts are committed by monstrous people, but actually that's not the case. Some people are given the platform of leading countries. Some people are given the platform of leading companies. Some people are given the platform of leading homes that can, put, that can make these monstrous acts. But I say some people, but I actually mean all of us. We're all capable of doing these things. I love what, um, I forget the gentleman's name this morning, who preached this morning. Um, one of, in part of his sermon, he said um, that one of the good bits about the um, liturgy within the uh, Church of England is that they have confession. And I'm like, when he wanted to say that, I was like, yeah, I love that. Because that's so true, isn't it? Confession is something that in my life I don't tend to do, if I'm honest with you. Well, not enough. I don't like to self-reflect. I think, you know what? There's so much more that I need to be doing there's so much more that I need to change. So anyway, I was talking to my friend about this, and he said, well, yeah, I still get your point, Jack, but I don't believe you. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm not trying to convince you. This isn't like a quite Q&A thing. Um, he often tells me things he dislikes about Christianity, and we go back to atheism, and we go backwards and forwards. But it's great. I said, look, this is what showing the gospel is about. I'm not, I'm not trying to push you into belief what I want to believe, but we have respect for each other. And I said, I just want to give you a quote from Young, who's very close with uh, Freud a psychologist and he said this he said we need more understanding of the human nature because the only real danger that exists is man himself 
He is the great danger, and we are pitifully unaware of it. We know nothing of man, far too little. His psyche should be studied, as we are the, or- as we are the origin of all coming evil. I said, look, that's a psychologist saying this. <laughs> this is not from the Bible. There's something wrong in, innate within man that you've got to say, you know, isn't there, when you look at the world and see things and events that are going on, especially now, don't you think there's something not quite right innate within humankind? Do you not think that when you look at the actions that people do with so little disregard for other countries and their feelings and their families and people in general, do you not think there's something innate within mankind that's inherently wrong? And, he's, and he, he still didn't believe it, but it's like, that's okay, that's okay. Because that's what the Bible says. And so, you know, that's what I believe as a Christian. I believe that when Jesus says that he came to die for us and we all have this evil, and that we all committed evil acts and we all, that sin is in this world and we all commit sin. This is what the Bible says. And I believe that's true. And I think when you look at the world, you can't deny parts of what I'm saying. And he mumbled by and he, was, he agreed to disagree, but he was kind of convinced in sense that he was willing to push his own thoughts to one side and, and at least consider what I was saying. But if we just take that one verse a bit on that to the beginning of that, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds, I was reflecting on this for myself and also possibly for some people here today. I shared a little bit about my, my testimony of how I became a Christian. <clears throat> I was brought up in a Christian home. I was brought up singing Christian songs since I was knee high. Um, I was doing all the stuff that um, I hope to do with my kids, if I'm honest with you. And I can't remember a time where I didn't know Jesus. It's hard for me that. Some people, I, I used to get jealous, if I'm honest, I'll be completely honest with you. I used to get jealous that some people had this amazing experience of when they, were, they weren't Christians and then they realised, oh, this God is real and they became Christians. And I was like, and that was such a huge time for them. And I never really had that because I grew up knowing Jesus. But I, obviously I grew later to actually think, you know, this is the best way. I'm really happy that this happened to me in the way I want to bring up my children. But, you know, I was thinking, I never had that experience. I never really knew what it liked to be completely alienated from God. And even when I accepted Jesus into my heart as a younger child, I knew what sin was to a certain extent, but I didn't really fully understand how sinful I was until I got older and started doing more things and learning more things. And I think, goodness, I have become, I am so sinful and I've forgotten what it really means to, in the gospel, what it means to be alienated from God. And maybe there's some of us today here today, you've been Christians for a long, long time. I don't know how many years you've been a Christian for. But maybe you need to sort of think, you know what, I want to remember what it was like before I knew Jesus. Or maybe you've known Jesus for so long and you do appreciate it, but you've got to think, well, actually, Lord, tell me what it was like to be in the darkness and now I'm in the light. Teach me what it really means, Jesus, because I want to know what it really means to be in the light. But in order to know what it means to be in the light, I need to know what the darkness was. Maybe some of us here today just need to remind ourselves of what your life was like before you knew Jesus. Sometimes when I speak to Christian friends, we find it hard to give thanks. Um, This is just in general where I've been with my friends. And that's because we forget what we've got to be thankful for. And every day that we gave communion this morning is to give thanks to God for all that he has done for us. Moving on almost to the end. Let's say, we're on to the end of this uh, section here. 
But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight. See, what I really love about this as well, which I was reflecting more on this verse, is that Paul takes us, if you like, straight from the incarnation, straight to the resurrection. There's no in-between bit. There's no in-between bit. Straight from the incarnation, boom, straight to the resurrection. And this is what I was talking about before, because some people tend to think Jesus is a great teacher. And so, yeah, Jesus was a man. He lived this earth. He walked and he talked and he did great things. And, he, and the things he taught was great. But actually, it's not the teachings of Jesus that save us. And when I really thought about that, I thought, you know what, that's, that's really true. It's not saying that the teachings of Jesus are important. Of course they are. Please don't misunderstand me on that at all. But, it's the, but the, what saves us is the fact that Jesus came when he came to die. And from, being, from his death and resurrection. And it's the belief in that that we have eternal life. And there's no better example than that, than one of the, my best stories I read in, in Matthew 16, where uh, Peter is really chuffed with himself because Jesus says to him, you know, who do you say I am? And he's like, oh, you're the Messiah. And he's like, yes, you are right. You are the person I will build my church on, Peter. Well done. And he was to give himself a pat on the back and thought, woo, I'm awesome. But actually, if you look towards the end of that chapter, what do you get? He actually, Jesus, when he talks about the Son of Man must die, he says, no, no, Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him and says, Satan, get behind me. I mean, what a rebuke that must be. I mean, there are rebukes and there are rebukes, aren't there? <laughs> I mean, if I was going to be rebuked by a Christian or whoever, I would, that would be the worst thing anyone could ever say to me, isn't it? But that is really stern, and yet Jesus says that to him. And why? It's because Peter didn't fully understand at that point the real message of the gospel. He's Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want you. Jesus, I love your teachings. I love it. And I'm sort of why the Sermon on the Mount was one of the biggest turning points in my life for myself. And Peter would have said, Yes, Jesus, I want you. But he didn't understand the real message of the gospel is that Jesus came to die. And we read that in these verses that follow on the following slide. But we do see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Next one is, Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil himself. You see, Paul brings us right back to the cross. He takes us from the incarnation straight to the cross. And this is why I said, what happened at the cross? We say, okay, Jesus lives. Yes, one. Jesus came and he died. So what happened at the cross? I think what happened at the cross, well, I don't think I know what happened at the cross, is that two things happened. And the best way I can give an illustration before I say it is this. It's, if you can imagine someone had taken a load of people captive and held them against their will. And there's a time when the SAS come in and they burst through the doors and they come in and they rescue whoever it is that needs to be rescued. And there's two things that happen at that time. There's the liberation of the people who've been held captive. And there's a the judgment of the person or the people who had kept them captive. And there's a final judgment that will happen when they face the courts and go wherever from there. And that's exactly what happened at the cross. When Jesus came and Jesus died, it was not only our freedom that was born there, but it was the defeat of the enemy as well and sin and death. 
And there's a great story that I read once of a, uh, of a tiger shark in an aquarium in uh, South Korea. And it swam, around this sh- it swam around this place for ages and ages and ages. And there was other sharks and other animals. And they're barging into it for so long until it finally got enough and it suddenly attacked one of the other sharks. And it just basically ate it whole. Didn't even just literally attack it. It ate the whole thing. And then it swam around the whole aquarium with its fins sticking out its mouth. And he did it for three days, showing all the aquarium. Like, Look who's boss. And after he had enough, he just spat it out. He's like, I'm not having any more of that. And I love that because it reminds me in Corinthians, which says that death was swallowed up by victory at the cross. That we have a saviour who swallows up death and victory is there at the cross. And that to me is the most amazing and outstanding thing. And that's why I was saying to my friend, he said, you know, how can you say the cross is beautiful? I talk about I like to do arts. And I said, well, you see, when the, when the um, Passion of the Christ first came out, I remember giving a ticket to my teacher to, to go to the cinema and watch it. And they came back and they said, how can you enjoy watching 30 minutes of your saviour being brutally hit and or whipped and all these things? I said, I don't enjoy it but you're missing the real message of it. He said, but how can you call it beautiful? And I said, well, you know what? That's the real mystery of the cross because it's the place where, beauty, where brutality meets beauty and it's the place where slavery meets freedom and it's the place where our freedom was born at the foot of the cross. And that's why even though the cross, yes, it's gory in all it is, but yet we can sing amazing songs and say, oh, the wonderful cross, oh, the beauty of the cross. It was not just another crucifixion that happened. It is where our freedom was bought at the highest of all prices by God's own son. The last bit when I come towards, almost coming to a close, in Hebrews, this is one of my favourite verses in the Bible. I almost ended up doing a sermon all on Hebrews 2 because I kept referring to it. But it says this, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it is fitting that God, we said Jesus, God, divine Jesus, for, it is fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, but should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes the people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. So man, Jesus isn't ashamed of you. Isn't that the most amazing thing you can think about? We often think about, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But Jesus isn't ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. And to me, that was the most amazing and humbling thought of all. To think that this God who is beyond imagination, the Jesus, the image of the invisible God, out of love and everything else that he has for us, would do this for me. I just want to share two comments before I close. C.S. Lewis says this really great, really great quote. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I love that. I, 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 just, I just love that. I feel like I put it on my wall or somewhere. I was like, yes. Jesus, if false, is of no importance... You can replace your Christianity with Jesus. If true is, is of infinite importance, the one thing Jesus cannot be is moderately important. And how much of my life 
of your life have we treated Jesus? Is moderately important in times of our lives? I don't know. I'll give that to yourself to self-reflect. But if we believe it's true, and I'm assuming we all do, the way this evening's been set up, that Jesus is of infinite importance, then Jesus must infiltrate every area of our lives. And there's this one line that I've wrote down to take with you, maybe in your mind if you go through it. If Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. If Jesus, if Christ is not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. And some of us just need to make Christ Lord of all again in our lives. Lord over our families, Lord over our marriages, Lord over our future, Lord over our concerns. We want you to be Lord of all, Jesus. I just ask you to bow your heads in prayer as we come to close and we just rethink what we've heard. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you are the root of our salvation. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the accomplisher of our salvation. We thank you that you are beyond imagination. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the image of the invisible God. That your love is fierce for your children, for this world. We thank you that we know that you lived and you died. And we believe as body believers that you raised to life. And it's through that that we are saved and we can have fellowship with you. Remind us again and again and again, day after day, the importance of the gospel. The importance of the real gospel. That yes, Jesus, your teachings are of infinite importance, but your coming and dying and raising from the dead is what saves us and believing in that. And we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. And we pray for those who don't know you, of our friends, our family, our work colleagues, that we pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts, that they would enjoy the beauty and the mystery of the cross and the beauty and the mystery that is of Jesus and what he is to us and what you do in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.